Hi, I'm Bailey. And I'm Serena. Welcome to Creative Baggage, a podcast that gets into the nitty-gritty of pursuing an artistic career. In this episode, we have a conversation with Dr. Tanya Kalmanovich about forging an artistic path that is socially and politically aware. In response to the paralyzing realization that we are complicit in an industry that perpetuates racism and classism, Dr. Kalmanovich challenges us to imagine a better way by asking a simple question. What if? My name is Tanya Kalmanovich and I am a violist, an improviser, a writer, and I'm on faculty at New England Conservatory in Boston and at Manus School of Music at the New School in New York. And I live in Brooklyn. That's where I am right now. Yeah, so we found you because of an article that you wrote um, that was circulating both of our Facebook feeds and we actually both came across it separately and we both really resonated with it. So the article that you're referring to is an essay that they published in July 2018 in 21CM magazine called How Quitting Music Made Me an Artist. Mm. And in it, I tell the tragic and uplifting story of what happened after I finished Juilliard. So I started off with this sort of triumphant narrative of like being 14 and deciding um, that I was going to switch to viola and I was going to become a professional musician and making this unlikely journey from a working class rural Canadian family to the big city and the halls of art music. (laughs) And then what happened afterwards being this kind of like um, an image like you know those old like pirate cartoons where you walk the plank and you drop off into the ocean and then it's over. <laughs> so I talk about like this this un you know so if, if if the story of how you get into a place like Juilliard is like a heroic narrative, mm-hmm. I'm like this is what happened after like after the credits roll, <laughs> after <laughs> yeah. the curtains come down, and um, I talk about quitting music. Mm. which is something that no one is ever allowed to speak of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so many articles out there just how I got into Juilliard, period, or how I got into this orchestra, period. And we don't really hear either what comes in between or what comes after. Yeah. Yeah, nobody really talks about the the after so much and I think I think the thing you're saying when there's lots of articles about how to get into a school or how to get into an orchestra it reflects this idea that we have this really narrow conception of success mm. right like success is always measured by external gatekeepers so there's somebody out there who says yes you are good enough mm-hmm. you get to pass it's like monopoly you know <laughs> yeah two hundred dollars right and the path for most people, it's not linear, it's not straight, it's not even, and it's not a constant ascension upwards. Mm. The problem is, is that I think training in classical music, everything up until there, is like kind of linear, you know? you At some point, someone taps you and says like, oh, you've got like, you got something, and you get like a better teacher, or you get into like a better pre-college program or something. And then uh, you pass this audition for the summer workshop or festival, and then you pass this audition for school, and then you pass another audition, and you make it into like you know a better seat in the orchestra or whatever, and you mm. keep passing gatekeepers who keep saying yes. So you keep thinking, if I just if I practice hard enough, I'll get there. The problem is that the, the 
the skills that it takes to get into a conservatory and the skills that it takes to thrive in a conservatory are relatively narrow. Yeah. And it's like a kind of like a hourglass. Like you start from like all the things that you can do when you're like nine years old. And then you start like specializing more and more and more until like everything condenses down to this like one thing you do on this one instrument in this one repertoire. <laughs> and then you get into the school and then you're in like the middle of the funnel when you're in school. And then when you get out, it's not like the funnel just delivers you boom into a seat <laughs> and build up the orchestra. Well, for some people it does, but for most of us, it gives us this other, like the funnel fans out again, mm -hmm. right? And suddenly the skills that we need to survive and the number of ways that we could survive, the number of things we could do as musicians is like exponentially larger. Mm. And yet we're always handed this one narrow conception of success. Yeah, and it like, it teaches you to externalize your own value. So like if there's always one person tangibly telling you, yes, you're good enough or no, you're not good enough, then you never learn how to measure your own worth and decide if you're happy with your art and your music or if you're not happy with it and there's something that you want to change. I, I think maybe like maybe a first step is to cut through sort of the cultural, the professional cultural mythology of what constitutes success mm. and to think about what seems like meaningful sort of markers for you. Mm. So the rules for how to be a musician um, in the pandemic have not been written. <laughs> yeah. And the rules for what was supposed to be an important musician or who was, a, who was supposed to be successful are flawed. Mm. They're elitist, they're hierarchical, they reflect cultural supremacy, cultural imperialism, white supremacy, a whole bunch of other economic injustice, like, yeah, you know, all of that, right? <laughs> so, I mean, on the upside, you get to write new rules. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it is exciting, I think, because I remember first... My, my first introduction in musicology, I, I started, I had a very, very great teacher, luckily, and she started to introduce me to sort of like new musicology, which is a lot of like critical thinking and, and criticizing the culture and the elitism and all the racism, sexism, everything in classical music. And I remember my first reaction was like, I don't think I want to be a flutist in this world. If this is the system, like if this is the field that I have to play on, I don't want to play on it anymore. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, that's a hard thing to digest when you spend your whole life trying to get onto that field, <laughs> <laughs> trying to be good enough to be able to, you know, play classical music professionally and, and all of that to finally get to a professional level and not want to do it anymore because the culture is, is this bad, you know, it, it was hard. Okay, it's time for an inspirational quote. <laughs> Toni Morrison. I tell my students, when you get these jobs you've been so brilliantly trained for, just remember that your real job is that if you are free, you need to free somebody else. If you have some power, then your job is to empower somebody else. Mm. I like that. You know, that Lisa, there's a question that 
I sometimes ask my students when they come up against these sorts of issues, which is like, well, what kind of flute do you want to play? Although usually it's violin or viola. Anyway, what kind of flute is it that you want to play? Do you want to play a flute that's a tool of conquest and competition and like elitism and hierarchy? (laughs) Or do you want to play a flute that's like a convener of community or affect or the convener of um, connection? possibility same freaking instrument right yeah same repertoire even (laughs) but it's the process right it's the why Mm -hmm. and the what for which leads you to different kinds of hows so that's worth thinking through yeah I think it's kind of paralyzing sometimes to realize that we're just complicit in so many horrible things that are going on in the world all of the time from the food that we eat to the clothes that we buy like everything we do we're complicit in something awful um and so like if we just sit around and only think about that of course it's important to be aware but if we only think about that then i don't want to do anything you know um so like the only way is to do your best and like move in the direction that you want to be in even if you start from a place of being the most complicit okay inspo quote number two how adrian rich um there's two parts to this one i'm going to pause in between each one the first one is um these are both from an essay called what if in that she wrote in the early 90s she said a revolutionary poem will not tell you who or when to kill what and when to burn or even how to theorize it reminds you for you have known somehow all along maybe lost track where and when and how you were living and might live it is the wick of desire so a revolutionary poem is a wick of desire so it's not about like you going off into the world and like making some like awesome project in like you know social entrepreneurship land or like international development land um it's attending to the wick of who you are what your being is what you already are who you already are Mm. and your desires um what they might be if you take them away from the lens of what your teacher said a good flutist was or what your parents said a good person was or what your culture or the many cultures that you participate in say is moral or right or just you know like you decide for yourself what your desire is then it's like okay what kind of flute do i want to play that's an exciting Mm. rich question right the only place it can come from is like you're attending to that flame She goes on to say, any revolutionary art is an alchemy through which waste, greed, brutality, frozen indifference, blind sorrow and anger are transmitted into some drenching recognition of the what if, the possible. What if the first revolutionary question, the question the dying forces don't know how to ask? So... What if is like this, like radical, imaginative, emancipatory question. Yeah. Mm. So 
Yeah, I mean, the new musicology stuff is amazing as necessary work. If you let yourself stop at, well, I don't want to be complicit because it's, in, right? Yeah. Then you are not doing the full work, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you guys saw this thing, but there was like a PBS NewsHour video that people were sharing yesterday with Yo-Yo Ma about how art can restore humanity in COVID-19. I didn't. I didn't see it, but I can visualize it. <laughs> well, I'll send you the I'll send you the link. Um, basically, he pauses and he gives this really thoughtful look, and he says that he says that any musician, what they need to do first right now is really attend to the human connection. So he suggested that people take their smartphones and record a song and think of someone that they know and send them that video with a little voice message on it saying like, Richard, this is for you, I thought of you. And the next day to do that. And he advocated that somehow through this process of person to person connection building that other ideas and solutions would arise. Mm. Now, the interviewer shed a tear, she cried, so moved. And I showed this in this class that I was teaching last night and a lot of people also started to cry, it's so beautiful. I am like such a cynic the whole time. I'm thinking like, man, that's like an eight hundred to thousand dollar admission ticket to be able to do that. Those are not cheap smartphones. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm also thinking like, this is great, but it's not going to pay the rent. Right. 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 So it's true that person-to-person connection matters, right? Uh huh. But the real issue is that the systems that are supposed to be paying artists for their work were already totally insufficient, and yeah. now he's saying you're going to restore humanity by doing it for free. Yeah. Right back at square one. Right. <laughs> I mean, the other thing is that it's it's easy enough for like you know the Yo-Yo Ma's theory of change in that model about how art was going to restore humanity was that, okay, just keep doing this on an individual level and then magically something will happen and then humanity will be restored. Yeah. Right? So how it gets restored and how you're supposed to be able to continue making those videos every day and after a while you're going to run out of people to send them to you and start thinking of new people. It's going to take some work, right? Yeah. Right? Anyway, the point is, is that how that's going to happen and how you're going to sustain yourself while you're doing it is never explicated. Mm. Um, so thinking with a little bit more precision around um, the theories and methods by which, like proven strategies by which things change. Mm. Um, the literature is out there. Like the, There are boundless examples. Um, I've just been doing a little bit of research for the course that I'm teaching, a little mini course in Juilliard's evening division right now about arts and uh, music and activism. And I've come across so many resources that are like fantastically rich in showing people exactly how to do stuff that leads to, you know, actual effects, like changed behavior, mm. right? So understanding the mechanisms of how culture can generate change that's something you can study, it's something you can read about, it's something you can be like inspired by, and something you can think about in acting. You've still got to figure out how to balance that against like the activities you need to do in order to make a living. But if you thought about like working with the tools that you have at your disposal, like let's say you do have a studio of eight like students. 
Like, what an amazing piece of real estate in terms of people's attention, mm. in terms of worlds that you can impact. Yeah. You know, it's just a little thing, but, like, what about, like, even, like, your own artistic practice and the zone that you erect around it, and you declare that that zone of practice is a cruelty-free zone, mm. right? Like, that is the zone that is free of oppression, right? So you figure out what it means to actually play your instrument without telling yourself you suck or you'll never be good enough. Yeah, and I feel like that, like, practice seeping into your life and becoming a habit does have an impact on other people because you inevitably interact with other people and they see how you operate and they will mimic that. I mean, we mimic each other's words all the time. Like someone starts saying a phrase that's your friend and they say it enough times, you pick it up and you say it too. Or like the best example that I always use is that I got really into environmentalism and sustainability. And like by my freshman year of college, I was like, super wacky about it and I would bring my own bags everywhere and I would bring bags for my friends if they came shopping with me and I'd bring my own containers and I was just like really adamant about recycling and just having good sustainable practices in my own life and then what happened was my friends started realizing like hey either one Serena's gonna yell at me if I don't do this or two um it's actually not that hard because they got used to doing it when they were with me or I would do it for them that I noticed that all of my friends were picking up habits here and there just by seeing me do it and experiencing mm -hmm. doing something good with me. So if you have like good mentalities in the practice room and in your performances and you have good reasons for why you do your art, then the artist that you connect with and that you interact with will start to pick those up, I think. So there's like like three ways of looking at like levels of society. There's like a micro, which is on the level of an individual or a family system or relationship. There's like a mezzo, which is like larger family systems, communities, neighborhoods, organizations, a symphony. And there's a macro, which is like, you know, the state or an entire profession or something. And change flows from those different levels all the time. And similarly, in terms of like thinking about culture as a space, you have like a high art culture with the big C, like what happens in art museums and galleries and symphony halls or movies and television. And then you have like ordinary culture, like the lived experience, the little C, like work habits, norms, the way we think about like employment or romance or, you know, I don't know, voting or whatever. <laughs> Like those things flow into one another and affect one another. But the biggest driver in the end is like, I, I think what visible representations you see of how things can be. So if you're gonna be like, there's no way for me to be a flutist without participating in this like toxic, corrupt system, mm -hmm. and you can't imagine another way of doing it, then no one's ever gonna find a way out of it. Mm. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I just want to like throw out that like that idea around like the integral role or the essential role of imagination. Yeah. And it's also like you don't have to do like you don't have to do it full time. You don't have to go around being like full time creative imagineer <laughs> doing radical things that change people's lives. I mean, you could just have, like, a little bit, and you could just do it consistently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, in Serena's case, like, how long have I been a vegetarian? A year. 
And it was totally because of you, and now other people are considering, or my boyfriend, you know, is considering becoming vegetarian, and that's indirectly, you know, a chain of action from you. Yeah, and it's literally because we had a class right before lunch every single day together, and so we would make lunch every single day together, and as a result of that, because I couldn't eat meat, we didn't make anything with meat, and then Bailey got used to it. Um, and I recognized that, like, I didn't really love to eat meat so much in the first place. It didn't bring me that much joy in my life. So it was easier for me to cut it out than someone who absolutely loves it. And I'm not really asking anybody who absolutely loves meat to never eat meat, but I think we can all make some concessions and say, like, hey, we're going to do less of this thing that's not as good for the environment. Um, and that makes a huge difference. Like, we don't have to be strict and puritan about everything that we do. We can just make some changes that are a little bit better. Like, I'll use a plastic cup sometimes. Sometimes I forget or I'm caught out and I'm really thirsty or I just need my coffee. And I'll feel a little bad about it, but in the end, just because I made a change to most of my habits, the one or two little mistakes that I make along the way are far less impactful than if I just never thought about it at all and continued doing what I was doing before. Right, and that's like an attitude that my people have, like if they might have a zero-sum or sort of like a totalitarian kind of attitude about it where they say like it's not worth doing if I can't do it perfectly all the time. Mm. Right? Remember there was like a meme that somebody put out a couple <laughs> years ago saying like we don't need everybody doing, um, oh, we don't need a handful of people doing zero waste perfectly. We need like multiple people doing zero waste imperfectly. Yeah. What would it be to like have a pedagogy of imperfection? So you can find me um, on my website at www.tanyakalmanovich.com that's K-A-L-M-A-N-O-V-I-T-C-H.com um, on Twitter and Instagram at at Kalmanovich again with a T and Facebook there's just like one person with my name in the world so that pretty much helps matters um, and one thing I'm excited to let people know about is that I'm just taking the first steps to launch a kind of a coaching and consulting business where I'm working with musicians on ideas like the ones that we're talking about. So I'm thinking of it kind of like private lessons for everything around music, like private lessons for how your music meets the world, how your music relates to the world we're living in, and how we can build like joyous, resilient, and, um, I don't know, responsive and respectful careers. <laughs>